Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes, joined by Terry Fakes for another troubled text. And this is one probably from the beginning of our podcast over three years ago till now. We have gotten a lot of questions that tie into this text, not just the text itself, but the whole issue, everybody's favorite issue in evangelicalism, Calvinism versus Arminianism. And I don't know that we want to bill it like that. I don't think this is a Calvinism, Arminianism smackdown, but that is something that perennially comes up whenever you mention difficult texts. And so today we're going to tackle part of that issue, the kind of coup de gras text for many Calvinists, Romans chapter 9. Exactly. It does highlight the tension that we feel. And by the way, not just Christians, but philosophers in general feel between the idea of what is determined and what is uh, is open to the will of humanity. So determinism and free will, just to shorthand it, is a common philosophical problem, not just a Christian problem. But for Christians, the question becomes, if God is indeed sovereign, are there limits around human free will? And that's going to come up. That core tension is going to come up in this passage. So if you've spent any time with uh, these doctrines before, or honestly, if, you, if you've been an evangelical around young people before, you've probably encountered the person who all of a sudden has become a Calvinist. They're 21 years old and know everything, and they want to tell all of their Armenian friends how wrong they are about election. And so they will go to Ephesians 1, they'll go to Romans 9. At every Bible study, it will come up that God is completely sovereign. And if you say anything otherwise, then maybe, just maybe, you're a vessel of wrath. We we call this <laughs> the cage stage of Calvinism, where everybody's looking for a cage match. And I certainly uh, have a fondness for this, remembering my own cage stage of Calvinism. It's kind of an eye-opening experience when you get into the doctrines of reform theology or Calvinism or big grace theology, sometimes it's called big God theology. Uh, and so sometimes these conversations can get really heated. And we've certainly had heated conversations before about this topic. But one of the things I want to do today is kind of map out where people are coming from, map out why people uh, maybe get a little heated on this issue. But then as, as we start to explain this text, I think what you'll see is there are a couple of fundamental differences, and there are actually several places of agreement. And then there's one place I think we'll end at the end where we all have to kind of throw up our hands a little bit and say, we know kind of what this is, but we don't know how. And maybe moving through that part, we'll, we'll diffuse some of these conversations. Uh, but our goal certainly isn't to say, oh, everybody just actually agrees on everything. There are real differences of opinion here, but I don't right. think there are as many as it sometimes seems like in our world of kind of Calvinist versus Arminius. Yes, and perhaps it'll help to introduce our passage. It, it has two movements in it, and I, I'll go ahead and read this, and then perhaps you could give us a little context. In the middle of Romans chapter 9, Paul ends verse 13 and said, As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Well, that's an inflammatory statement. And so then in the next two paragraphs, he's going to anticipate a question. And so in Picking up in verse 14, he says, what shall we say then? In other words, I can understand your next question. Is God unjust? By no means. For God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or human exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, God says, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whom he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. That's verses 14 through 18 and introduces a difficult question. Uh, and so I guess the first question is, where you know, why is this in the middle of Romans? How does it fit into the, why are we even talking about this goal? Why does this right. come up? Well, I think the, the, the question we want to answer is why is this a tough passage? And the first yeah. reason it's a tough passage is because sometimes we have no idea what the context is. Like you said, yeah. why, why are we even talking about this? How did we get to the whole Jacob? I loved Esau. I hated 
Um, I think the, the the question that you've introduced in 14 through 18, is God just? Why are we even asking that question? Is God just? Right. Why would that why would that come up? And to understand this, you have to go back a little bit to the context of the book of Romans itself. And I think honestly, some of the confusion over Romans 9 could be diffused by studying the rest of Romans. Now, the problem is Romans is really long and very involved as an argument. So sometimes by the time you get to chapter nine, if you've read it in one sitting, you've been reading for maybe the better portion of an hour at this point. And it's hard to remember what's happened in chapter one. But in chapter one, and the theme of the book of Romans is a two-pronged statement that Paul makes in chapter one, verse 17 and 18. So we typically think of chapter one, verse 16 as a, as a really famous statement uh, thesis statement in Romans, but it's really the next two verses that show us what the project is going to be for the next eight chapters. So in chapter one, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And then verse 17, for in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So you have righteousness revealed, that's one side of it. And then in verse 18, for, on the flip side, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And so you have two revelations. It's actually one revelation, but it has Mm -hmm. two sides to it. You have a revelation of righteousness for those who have put their trust in Christ, who are walking and living by faith. And you have a revelation of judgment and wrath against all those people who are ungodly and who are rebelling against God. And if you read through Romans, you realize the first three chapters, two and a half chapters, are all about the wrath of God that's been revealed against ungodliness. And by the time you get to chapter three, what you should realize is every person, Jew, Gentile, grew up in a Jewish home, grew up in a Christian home, grew up in, you know, a pagan home, everybody has become an object of God's wrath because of sin. I mean, this is Mm -hmm. where Paul goes in the end of chapter one to remind us that sin is not just bad decisions. Sin at its root is false worship. It is suppressing the truth, worshiping the created thing rather than the creator who should be praised forever. So sin, what, what gets us to God's wrath is not just that we've done something wrong. It's that we're all about the wrong thing. Instead of worshiping and giving thanks to him, we have worshipped either ourselves or creative things or desires that we have, and we have been living that out in every area of our life. Then in chapter two, he goes and he says, okay, after that, some of the Jews in the audience are thinking, well, that doesn't apply to us because we're Jews and we worship God. And he says, yeah, "Yeah, but do you really worship him or do you just do things externally? Or are you hypocrites? Do you even teach things that you don't follow up and do? And so by the time you get to chapter three, you have a pretty bleak picture. He says in 3.11, no one is righteous, not one. Nobody on their own merit is righteous. And then the good news in Romans actually begins in chapter 3, verse 21. I'll read these four verses because this is the statement against the backdrop of sin of what it means for God to have mercy. He says, but now, so think about the, the language here. In 17, you had the righteousness of God is revealed. But before you got to that, now in chapter 3, you had 18, which is the wrath of God is revealed. Now he Mm -hmm. says in 321, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, and this is a real famous verse, and here's the context for it. There's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, as an atonement by his blood, to be received by faith. This is how God shows his righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. That really encapsulates the whole context of where we've been. The default of the human condition for every person is sin. We all deserve the judgment of God, and it has been revealed in Christ. Uh, Christ's revelation will either be a revelation of mercy or a revelation of judgment, and there is no in-between. You're in one category or the other. And the remedy is to trust in him. It's a righteousness that can be received through faith, and the righteous live by faith. And um, this is God 
having passed over former sins, now opening the uh, opening the door through the gospel for people to be righteous in Christ. So after that, you have a series of questions or diatribes where Paul says, well, if that's true, then what about this? Uh, you know, what about people who go on sinning? What about when I do the things I don't want to do in chapter seven? And then you have this great mountaintop chapter uh, eight, one of the most beautiful chapters in the Bible that talks about the new life of walking by the spirit, putting sin to death, of course, ending with the great, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Then we come to chapter nine and chapter nine through 11 are another answer to a question. And this question is, okay, if all this is true, we just have to put our trust in Christ and we can be saved from the wrath of God, then what about all the Jews, right? What what, what about mm-hmm. God's covenant with the Jews? It, did that just not work out? Did, did it just not pan out the way God wanted it to? Or a, a different way of looking at this is, okay, how can Christians be so sure that this is all going to turn out the way God says? Because it doesn't look like it turned out very well for the Jews. How can we have such confidence that God is really going to do this when it looks like maybe God failed in his project with the Jews. And so Paul's going to take that up in chapter nine, and he's going to talk about being a Jew in the first few verses. But then in verse six, he's going to say, but is it is not as though the word of God has failed. And he's going to go and explain not all children of Israel are true Israel. And we finally arrive at verse 14. Okay, God has selected through his covenant, the nation of Israel. But then through his election, he has elected certain people in Israel. So, for example, Jacob is the line of Christ. That is the true line of Israel. And Esau is not. That's where you get the quote from Malachi, Jacob I love, Esau I hated, which I think we'll come back to. And uh, God has been selective this whole time. He has been electing a portion, a remnant of the people of Israel this whole time. And then you arrive at the logical question. If you have just found that out, you would probably say something like, well, then is God being unjust in his election? And this is where we arrive in chapter nine. So that's a a quick overview of how we got here. This is really a response to the teaching in chapters one through three. Uh, The following chapters have fleshed this out. And now we've come to this point of, okay, if we zoom out though, what about the Jews? What's going on here with the election, the covenant, the mercy of God for Jews and now for Gentiles? Yes, and I think that explanation is really helpful in beginning to answer the question, what makes this passage hard? So, for example, in uh, verse 18, Paul kind of concludes that little uh, paragraph by saying, so then God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Now, the Jews stumbled over that because they had a real problem with God showing mercy to Mm non-Jews. So, wait a minute. You know, that doesn't sound right to me. You know, and that's why he's saying, is God unjust? And they would say, well, maybe he is because he shouldn't be letting any of these Gentiles in. They're not in in the covenant. We, on the other hand, flip that around and we say, well, wait a minute. We kind of have a problem. We don't have a problem with mercy. Of course, none of us have a problem with with receiving mercy, but we kind of have a problem with the whole hardening thing. And so I think one of the reasons that we have trouble with this is that we come into it, the Jews came in with an assumption that only Jews could be saved. We come in with an assumption, I think, hidden assumption. We don't even necessarily vocalize it, that all people are kind of blank slates, and you kind of need to find out what they do before you can say who gets mercy and who doesn't get mercy. But that's not the way Romans comes into this. It's not the way God comes into this. Romans 1 through 3 has already established that there is no one righteous, not even one, and that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so if you take the uh, the truth that Romans comes in with, then this makes perfect sense. If we come in with the assumption that, hey, we're all we're neutral until we act and we should be judged based on the action, then we might say, maybe God's not just if he's going to choose us before we're even born, and apart from our acts of of righteousness. And so we kind of have this hidden assumption that maybe we ought to be saved by works or condemned by works. Now, we wouldn't say we intellectually believe it, but I do think, I don't know what your opinion is, I think that may be 
at the heart of why this strikes us as unfair or unjust. Now, what do you think about that? Yeah, the unfairness, I think, is the thing that most people get hung up on. Okay, if God's going to pick people to be saved, that seems very unfair. Uh, and I, I do think there is part of this where we have to reject fairness as a substitute for justice and righteousness. But with that said, I think the way you framed it up is is the key way to understanding this. And I've heard it put this way. The, the modern question is, you read a passage like this, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, hardened Pharaoh's heart. You know, there are certain vessels for honorable use, certain vessels for dishonorable use. Well, that that just seems so capricious. How could we believe in a God like that? And this is really a question of how do we make God acceptable to our sensibilities? Right. That is really the opposite question that Paul is trying to answer in the book of Romans. In the book of Romans, especially if you read chapters one through five, the question he's asking is, how could human beings ever be made acceptable to God? That right. he he has the inherent view of human sinfulness that on a large scale, and I'm not talking about individual Christians here, I'm just talking on a large scale in kind of American 21st century culture, we think that we should be chosen by God because of our inherent lovableness and niceness and you know, just being for being a genuinely good guy, that God should love us. And so then we have this, you know, how how could God send anyone to hell? Whereas Paul's coming at this like, how can anyone get out of hell? I mean, how how could anyone possibly be acceptable to God? And so that's a mindset shift we have to come to the text. We we really come to this text not at first trying to bring in our preconceived notions. We really come, like all these difficult texts, we talked about this in the first uh, part of this series, we come to all these texts trying to figure out what does it say and then what does it mean? And sometimes that means we need to revise our assumptions a little bit. I completely agree. I mean, I think if you think about the way we come to this, we need to let the Bible say what it wants to say. And I think if you accept, think about it this way, because I think this is where the real argument comes in. If you assume that, okay, all have sinned, and none of us have a claim on God that says, you need to send me to heaven because I've earned it. Let's just suppose that. Now, what would be the fair thing for God to do? Well, it would. You certainly couldn't argue with God if he said, OK, nobody's going to heaven. Well, OK, I, I mean, that's consistent. But we'd say, wow, there's no mercy there. And we appreciate a little mercy. Or God could say, OK, everybody goes to heaven. And we'd say, well, OK, I guess it's fair enough if you're going to, you know, you're going to let everybody in. But then again, there's no fairness in that because some people were moral monsters. And so what we really want to argue with God about is the standard. Somebody has to pick. And I think what we're really, we need to realize, what are we really arguing with God about here? Well, we just don't like his standard and we'd like to substitute our own. Right. And so I, I do think you're right. So what does it say? It says God has is making a decision that is just. Our beef with that is, well, I don't really like the way you're making that decision and I'd like to make it differently. And so I, I agree with you. I think first is, what is it saying? It's saying everybody deserves destruction. And God is electing, choosing to show mercy to some. I think Leon Morris says it this way in his uh, commentary. He said, God is not unjustly condemning some people. He's actually mercifully saving some people. And I think that's a better way to think about the reality of what Romans says is happening here. And once you frame it that way, all of a sudden you realize, well, actually, God is being very gracious rather than being unjust. And I think that's Paul's answer. He's actually being gracious to have mercy on any of us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that a good phrase for us to keep in mind, especially in passages like this, is we come, we need to come to the Bible with certain assumptions about God that we've learned. Um, if we are Christians, if we do trust in Christ, then one of the things that we've learned about God is that He is good and He is merciful and He is just and He has those qualities inherently, whether we acknowledge them or not, whether we understand them or not, God is all those things before we've ever said that about God. And so there's a phrase in theology that I think is really helpful here, which is faith seeking understanding. Mm 
And mm-hmm. sometimes we flip that around. We 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 try for understanding, seeking faith, which is we need to understand this before we can believe. But actually, we start with a whole set of assumptions that we believe about God. And then from there, we try to understand these texts. So, for example, I come to this text thinking God is good. There is a reading of this text where I may have to change my definition of goodness to a more biblical definition or you know my definition of love to a more biblical definition of love but at the end of this i'm going to come away with enough time and study and inquiry reaffirming that through what this text says god really is loving and just uh, because that's what we believe and some people say well that's kind of circular it's not circular at all because that's actually the foundation for how we interpret any of what the bible says so we are coming in expecting to find God looking like who he is in the text, not we bring in all these other assumptions to see if we can prove that God fits our own uh, perspective of who God is. So in this sense, the Bible is consistent with itself. And we'll get into this a little bit, but I, I went back this week because I wanted to see what, you know, Calvin is really the the elephant in the room here, you know, those Calvinists that take this passage and interpret it. And I thought, what does Calvin actually even say about this passage and how close is it to Calvinists? And we'll get into a little bit of that and where there are some differences between different Christian sects. But I was really struck by this just as an approach. This is a real zinger from Calvin's commentary on Romans 9. He says, monstrous surely is the madness of the human mind that is more disposed to charge God with unrighteousness than to blame itself for blindness. And I think that's really well said. It's a little it's a little bit of a sting. But I think that's really the difference of approach here. Wh- which is more likely? That we will charge right. God with unrighteousness for what this text says about him, or that we ourselves need to overcome a little bit of blindness as to what God is like and what he's doing in the universe. That's It's hard to hear, but that's really kind of the difference in reading this text well and reading it poorly. Yeah, Wesley would actually agree with that. Wesley has a little phrase. I may get this a little wrong because I'm quoting it from memory. But he basically talks about humans' posture before God. And he gets it right in the sense that he said man is small and impotent before the Almighty God. And he doesn't put humanity on an equal platform with God and says God's actions must be justifiable to us. So I think in that, you would see Wesley, Calvin, all agreeing that it's more likely that God is just uh, than that God is unjust. And we're seeing this thing clearly, is that we need to defer to the character of God. Right. So the first tough question here, as we've started to flesh it out in these 14 through 18 is, is it just for God to have mercy on some, to essentially elect some for mercy. And then the second difficult question is is maybe a step forward from this question. As we begin to answer this question, as we begin to look at the different views here in a minute, the connection will become very clear. No, Paul says, God has said he will have mercy on whom he will have mercy in verse 15. And then he gives the example of Pharaoh later on. And in response to that, he asks another question that should be on our mind. This is proof that we're reading it correctly if we ask these questions. He says, you will say to me then in verse 19, well, how does God find fault for who can resist his will? And Paul's going to answer that. I'm going to go ahead and read this, and then we'll come back to explain it a little bit. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded to say to its molder? Have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring how to show wrath, desiring to show his wrath and make his power, make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. So the second tough question here is, okay, if if God is going to choose some to have mercy on, and he's free to have mercy on whom he will have mercy, then how can we still be responsible then for believing or not believing? Because God is the one who is choosing. And this is really the one I think people come at and have a hard time with because it gets down to the crux of the issue. If God is pulling the strings, how can he find fault? 
it would be like if you were set up for something and then all of a sudden a judge charges you with that crime and you say that was I didn't intend to do that. That wasn't me. I was being controlled by someone else. How could you be punished by that? And uh, this is where you get a really strong reaction sometimes against Calvinism. I think maybe a, a misunderstood version of Calvinism, but it reveals something. I think the tension that's here. Well, we're not robots, right? We're not right. just pre-programmed robots. We have free will is what you hear most of the time. We we have free will. And so God is basically saying, if you choose good things, then he'll have mercy on you. If you choose bad things, you'll, you will receive his wrath. That's not as satisfying an answer as it sounds on the surface. Right. So this is a very tough question as well. Um, and maybe now we can start to, now that we've got the whole picture fleshed out, is God just? What about election? You know, what should we make of this? And if that's true, then what about moral responsibility? Are people just being made to do whatever God wants them to do? And then he's turning around and charging them with guilt. That seems like a very tough question as well. So now we've put it in probably the starkest terms to make it as difficult as possible. Let's start to sort through how people have approached this and maybe try to get towards some answers here. You know, what would be helpful to start with, I think, is let's go ahead and talk about the Calvinist position and the difference between God. Uh, you're, we're using the word election, but let me put it in the language of this. God choosing to have mercy on some. Maybe we'll call that predestination. He has chosen some people to have mercy upon. And the idea of double predestination, because I think there's some misunderstanding about what I think if you're going to criticize somebody, at least understand their view. And I don't believe Calvin, uh, what's the difference between predestination and double predestination? Maybe that's the best question yeah, to ask. There's there's some dispute over this theologically. And of course, neither of us is our area systematic theology, which I think is probably good for this podcast, because we're really trying to come away in some sense with an every man's reading of this passage. Right. We're much more... Uh, textual people than we are. Oh, here's the you know 99 different ways Calvinist scholars have approached this issue through the years. But right. I will say there's a there's a distinction sometimes among Reformed theologians over what's called double predestination, and that would be that God is destining some to heaven and some to hell, some for mercy and some for wrath. Uh, I I would reject that from this passage because, and I think Calvin would as well. Because the default for everyone in this passage is hell. This is this is not predestining in the same way. Now, we may be able to make an argument God created the universe, so everything ultimately goes back to him in some way or another. But it's certainly not the same kind of election or the same kind of predestining uh, that some receive mercy because everyone is already going to receive wrath. There's no predestining right. there in this same sense. What this passage says is God decides to show mercy on some, and God decides to give mercy to some people. That's what we just call predestination. It's only one single thing. God is plucking people from death into life. He is awakening certain hearts to turn to him and not others. So this will be a little difficult sometimes when we get to Pharaoh, Pharaoh's heart being hardened, which we can talk about in a minute. But I would say overall, we need to be mindful of the fact that the election in this passage is really one direction. It is an election of mercy, an election toward life. And so the Calvinist position, and that's, you know, this is painting with a broad brush here, but Calvin comments on this passage that there are three tenets that we should understand that Paul is saying. The first one is, Leading up to this passage and in the beginning of it, verses 1 through 5, the blessing of the covenant, he says, the covenant with Abraham, separates Israel from the other nations. And in the same way, election separates people within that covenant. So this is where you get Jacob and you get Esau. And the quote from Malachi is people say, you know, have you loved us? Or God says, I've loved you. And he says, you know, Jacob and Esau were brothers. They were twin brothers. And I loved one and hated the other, which is an argument against merit, right? There's nothing right. that Jacob did that made God love him more. There's nothing that Esau did that made him love him less. This is an act of God's will of mercy. And at the beginning, he's saying, look, even within the family of Abraham, you have descendants like Isaac, 
who is the blessed line, and you have descendants like Ishmael, who actually is not a cursed line, uh, but isn't blessed in the same way as Isaac is. And then, of course, you have Esau, who the New Testament really presents as a cursed line. In right. fact, we don't have time to get to this, but we've talked in the past couple of weeks about some of the literature in the Second Temple Judaism period, which would be things that people were reading in the time of Jesus, but are not in your Old Testament. And in the intertestamental period, in some of this literature, Esau is really, really a cursed figure. I mean, almost like mm -hmm. a demonic kind of figure. Uh, basically, what we understand from him is that he was not, uh, he did not follow God. He was not uh, turned towards him, did not worship him. He is a picture of someone who gives up the blessing of God for his own interest, for something as fickle as his own hunger. So, that's within the family of Abraham. So there's an election, there's a remnant within the family of Abraham that God is choosing to have mercy on. Tenet number two is, there is no basis for election other than the goodness of God alone without regard to works. This is really key to understanding the Reformed Calvinist position. There is nothing that a human being does that puts God in their debt. There's nothing that a human being can do to make God obligated to save them. It is totally unconditional election is the way that Calvinists would put it in tulip uh, language. And then number three, God is free, unconstrained by anything on the human side or the divine side. He is free to impart grace and mercy to whom he wills. So those three tenets, I don't think are very controversial. Now we may right. get into a discussion about this. The blessing of the covenant is a separation. Election is a, is a separation within that covenant. God has, from the very beginning until now, been preserving a remnant. In fact, we're going to get into that. Uh, if you were to continue reading, you get into that in chapter 11. He talks about uh, what Elijah says. He's like, I'm the only one that hasn't bowed my knee before God. And God says, I've actually got several thousand people that haven't bowed. They are the remnant. There's always been a remnant. And God has been having mercy on them. And there's no basis in that group that God owes it to them more than other people because everyone is sinful. And then lastly, God is free. He is not constrained by anything to either offer or not offer his mercy. And so God, out of the pleasure of his goodwill, it says in Ephesians chapter 1, he offers his mercy to those that he will have mercy on. That's the standard Calvinist approach. Uh, the only thing I would mention here, too, is usually in these debates you have TULIP come up. So TULIP is not Calvin, but it's a summary that other people have, have put on Calvin. You might have heard the five points of Calvinism. So you have total depravity, you have unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. One of the things that's interesting about this conversation is colloquially, I don't have any research on this, but just from conversations, usually the most tenuous point of the five points of Calvinism is limited atonement. And so sometimes you'll hear people say, I'm a four-point Calvinist, and 99 times out of 100, they mean, I really don't know what I think about limited atonement, but I get the rest of it. And yeah. they're designed to all go together. But the interesting thing is limited atonement and perseverance of the saints, which would be kind of a once saved, always saved type of understanding. Neither of those are really implicated in this passage. It's really just right. the other three that are at stake here. And those are the one that I would say the majority of people, even people that don't find themselves saying I'm a Calvinist, would agree with total depravity, limited or uh, irresistible grace, and unconditional election. Those are really what's at stake, and that's that's the hard Calvinist position on this. What are some of the other positions that people have taken? Yeah, that's a that's a great description because I think it's important to know what is, if you're going to disagree with someone, you ought to at least know what they what they say. And I want to characterize Wesleyanism a little bit, but let me use this analogy. And I realize it's it's an analogy, so it's not perfect. But let's say we're all falling out of the sky and we're falling toward hell for destruction. If Calvin says that God reaches out and grabs some, he has mercy on whom he will have mercy and pulls them to safety. But if he didn't do that, everybody is falling and going to hell. On the flip side of that, you have people that say, well, I don't like that 
strong a sovereignty. I want some role in this. So you have the idea of free will. And that is, I have some will too. And that's like saying we're all falling, but there's a rope there. And if you can, you can grab the rope and you can climb up and get over the ledge and God will say, oh, thank goodness you're here. Come on, uh, come on in. That's kind of a free will. Like I will choose God and I have done good works. And that's sort of salvation by my merit. I was indeed condemned to hell, but I was able to climb out, so to speak. That's not Orthodox Christianity from anyone's point of view. Neither Wesley, nor Arminius, nor Calvin, nor anyone. That is just simply not a biblical idea. You're saved by grace through faith, not by works. So what does Wesley say? He doesn't want to go all the way to Calvin. But he does have a strong sense of election. He said about himself, I was a brand plucked out of the fire. So Wesley totally understands grace, that you're saved by grace, not by your works. So where would he differ on this? Here's the way I would uh, characterize that is he believes that God acts first. And that you can't grab that rope and climb out on your own. Maybe this is the way to think of Wesley and see what you think about this. Here we are all falling again. And God would like everybody to come to safety. He does indeed love us all. And he's thrown a life preserver. And so he's made it possible. But not everybody will grab that life preserver. Not everybody will respond to that. But to everyone that will lift their hand. He will then pull you into safety. You won't do it yourself. He'll pull you into safety. And so maybe that's not a great analogy, but the idea is that Wesley wants to say, no, we didn't do this on our own. And we were completely doomed without God acting. But he wants to leave room for a response to God's grace. And so the difference, Wesley himself said, I'm a hair's breadth from Calvin. And I would say that's probably the way. In other words, does not disagree with total depravity, does not disagree uh, with the idea that our we have a freed will, as my friend Cliff Sanders likes to say, not a free will. In other words, God has freed our will to at least be able to grab the life preserver that he has thrown to us. And so I think you'll see, if you look at this passage, when Wesley reads this passage, he's very comfortable with the idea that God is the one who's having mercy. He simply believes God has enough mercy to cover everyone, but not all of us will respond. And in fact, none of us were even able to grab for that life preserver if he hadn't acted first. So it is a difference between Wesley and Calvin, but both of them have a huge gulf between God's sovereignty and the whole free will side. I don't know if that's a helpful way to characterize it. What would you critique about that or how would you elucidate that? Yeah, I think that that that's a really good explanation of where people differ on this. Um, when we when we come back to the text and you start to apply maybe those three different of course, there's really four. Like we said, there's kind of people that just think, no, there's a free will. You could just choose if you want to. That's really not a Christian position, but it does rear its head sometimes in just pop conversations of what do you think about this? Right. It, uh-huh. it, it just doesn't lead to a very good end. And we'll we'll talk about that later. It's just very hard to square that with what the Bible says. The, you know, the other maybe nuanced position that we would mention that is a little bit of a hybrid of some of these is there are people who take Romans 9 and say it's really not about salvation. It's about something else. You know, a vessel of wrath isn't eternal wrath. It means something like what you experience in this life, something like that. Or, you know, he has mercy on whom he has mercy is really just talking about a covenantal group of people as opposed to individuals. That's something that you hear a lot uh, with people who really don't want to take a hard stance, either Wesleyan or Calvinist or whatever on this passage. Or, you know, they maybe just think that this is what it's saying is. Just like you're talking about generally Israel as a group of people. Now, true Israel, you're also talking about a group of people. They have been chosen, elected by God without any merit on their own part. But this is not really referring to the individuals. This is referring to the group of people. And that's another position that people sometimes take on this passage. But with those three positions, 
laid out. Uh, let's talk a little bit about how we might interpret this passage, because one of the things about this series that we've promised is to give our take, not just the takes that people have, but maybe a little bit of our take. So let me let me fire off a couple of responses in the way that this passage is is interpreted, how I would interpret this passage, and then you respond with some ways that you would uh, dis- disagree or ways that you would interpret the passage. Mm-hmm. So if you're if you're looking at, I'm I'm going to use the the framework of these three uh, tenets: this uh, total depravity, unconditional election, irresistible grace. All of those derived, I think, from the three things I mentioned earlier. God is electing clearly in this passage. He's been doing it from the beginning of Israel until now. There's no basis for election other than the mercy of God. I mean, I just don't see how you can get anything out of this passage other than it is all by God's grace. That's really what verse 15 Mm -hmm. is saying. And you and I talked about this earlier. 15 is really the crux of how you're going to interpret this. Whatever you think 15 means, that's pretty much where you're going to come down on the on the passage. He says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and compassion on whom I will have compassion. It does not depend on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So, you know, I don't see any basis for election uh, on the goodness of a person. Of course, we could bring another text here as well. By grace, you've been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. It is a free gift of God. Um, not by works, so that no one should boast in Ephesians chapter 2. And then third, so God is free to actually have mercy on people. Um, So with that said, the Arminian position, I think, is difficult for this passage for this reason. I I don't hear a lot of Arminians actually make sense of this passage. What they'll do is they'll go back into Romans chapter 8, where at the end of Romans chapter 8, Paul says, those he foreknew... He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn of, firstborn of many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he also called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So they'll say, well, actually, the predestining is taking place of people that God knows beforehand will choose him. So if given a choice, a person would choose God, that's the person that is predestined. And so God actually predestines the people that are going to choose him, and he doesn't predestine the people that won't. And and this where this plays into our passage is the Pharaoh passage. So you got Pharaoh who hardens his own heart, and then God hardens his heart. God knew beforehand Pharaoh would not choose him. Therefore, he has been hardened because he didn't choose God. And they kind of work out election this way. Well, the first thing I would say about that is the first time we hear about Pharaoh's heart being hardened in Exodus is when God prophesies that that Pharaoh will harden his heart, which really throws a wrench into this. Yeah, um, I guess there's a foreknowledge part of this where it's like he knew that he would, so he prophesied it. But he tells uh, Moses, Pharaoh is going to harden his heart. And right. because of that, I am going to make him into a vessel to show my glory and judgment over him. That's pretty hard in my mind to square with kind of a result-based. I'm going to see what Pharaoh does. Oh, it turns out Pharaoh's not going to choose me. Okay, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. The sequence just doesn't line up like that. The second problem is, if that's the case, then God is choosing on the basis of merit. He is choosing the kind of person that would choose him. And when you remember that God created everyone, and you didn't just end up here, and now God's kind of taken it from there, then you end up with the same problem, except for now it's not recreation, it's original creation. Well, why did God create people then that he knew wouldn't choose him? This is the same problem everybody has. This doesn't really solve the problem. It just backs it up one choice away. So to put it in our taxonomy, I would say, I don't think that's the best reading of this passage, although I think you know people do and have nuanced arguments for it. I don't think it's the best passage because it really doesn't abide by the choice being God's. It just defers the choice to human beings uh, later down the chain. And then God responds right. to that. Now, I, I do. I agree with that. I think we both probably see that. Now, the, the area where maybe we do disagree a little bit is when you get to the Wesleyan position, there's a strong in, intuitive merit to that argument. And I would, so if the people are falling or if the people are drowning, it's God giving the ability. And Wesley talked about this through the preaching of the word. And this is where you go into chapter 10, 
you know, chapter 10 is going to talk mm-hmm. about how do people get saved? And there is a famous verse that most of us know, but you may not know this is the context of it. For with the heart, one believes and is justified. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. For scripture says, everyone who believes in the Lord will be saved. And it says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. But then he goes on to say, well, how will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how will they believe if they haven't heard? And how will they hear without someone preaching? And how are they going to preach unless they are sent? And then it says, um, faith comes from hearing in verse 17 and hearing through the word of Christ. So I think this is the strongest scriptural basis for the Wesleyan position, which is when the word is preached, when the gospel proclamation goes forth, God gives a provenient grace to open up the hearts of the people who are hearing, to free the will of the people who are hearing, so that they can respond now in a way that they could. So Wesleyans and Calvinists don't agree, they do not disagree on total depravity. They do disagree on irresistible grace. Is the grace of God resistible or not? Not is it resistible in the state of depravity. Is it resistible when someone has heard the word of God preached, they've heard the gospel, they've seen God's uh, invisible qualities, like in Romans chapter one, are they going to respond or are they not going to respond? And I think that's probably the best scriptural basis. But but one of my general thoughts is you don't see provenient grace anywhere in scripture. Take the conversion accounts in Acts, for example. In Acts chapter two, as many as the Lord had decided were added to their number. When Paul and Barnabas go to Lystra and they go to Iconium, God opened their hearts and they believed. Uh, You don't have any place in Scripture where God opens someone's heart and they decide not to believe. Um, You have as many as were appointed to salvation were saved. Uh, We have been predestined before the foundation of the world, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, to be adopted as sons. Uh, The other things I would throw in here is grace in this passage seems to be totally part of this mercy giving that God has. Maybe the distinction is, does God give you the opportunity to be saved or does God really save you? And what I would throw out is at the end of that same passage in Romans chapter eight, he said he has this golden chain of salvation. Having mercy is one action in the sense of those he predestined, he right. called. And those he calls, he justifies. Those he justifies, he glorifies. And Jesus is really insistent on this in John chapter 6. He says, no right. one comes to me unless the Father draws him, which would be a Wesleyan position, except what he says next, which is, and I will raise him up on the last day. I will not lose any of the ones that have been given to me. So I look at this passage and I say, you know, as hard as it is to square sometimes with our experience, which we're both going to come back to here in a second. As hard as it is sometimes to square with our experience, it really does seem like this passage is saying those that he elects, not just in the covenant, those he elects and those he chooses to have mercy on, they are going to believe. And so God is really in charge. He is the one who is having mercy and those people really will have mercy upon them. They really will believe and trust in him. So I, I think that's a pretty standard uh, Calvinist position, reform position, with some deference, I think, to the Wesleyan position not being very far away. But the difference I would have is, is the grace that's given resistible or irresistible? And I would say it's irresistible. Yeah, I'll, I will uh, argue the other side of that a little bit, acknowledging that there's not as big a difference here as people think. But I think, let me look at from Wesley's point of view, and I'm not a Wesley scholar, but as I understand Wesley's theology, here's the way it plays out. The one hand, Wesley will reject the idea of free will, the idea that even through God's foreknowledge of our meritorious actions is how he then elects people, because that just kicks the can down the road and you still have salvation by works, which Wesley clearly rejected that. And so I think he flees the free will side and moves toward Calvin. In other words, that it is God who is the Savior, not a human God cooperative effort. However, as he moves towards Calvin, 
he does embrace the idea of election. I think you can't get away from the idea of God's electing all the passages that you read. However, well, he's going to look at passages like God, you know, for God wants everyone to be saved. And he's going to look at God, not exclusively, but he's going to bring in the lens of God's love for his creation. He doesn't argue that we're all destined for hell, that we have all sinned. He's not got a God who just winks and nods and doesn't look at sin. But what he says is, yes, God is sovereign and God can choose whom he wills, but God's love desires all to be saved. Well, how do you square that circle? That's difficult. And so he comes up with what I would consider a theological construct, which is a way of acknowledging that God acts first, but in his love, he makes this offer to uh, his whole creation. And that's the idea of prevenient grace, is that God gives everyone enough grace that they could at least lift their head up out of their depravity and respond, not choose God, but respond. And here's maybe the way I would uh, distinguish it. I think Calvinists look at the preaching of the gospel as a way God has chosen to identify the elect. Maybe it's fair to say that Wesleyans would look at the preaching of the gospel to awaken the response in the elect. So there is a difference that grace is resistible. Maybe that's not the best word, but not everyone will respond to the grace. But God is giving prevenient grace so that everyone has an opportunity to respond to the gospel. And I agree, that is a difference with Calvin. But Wesley does not want to compromise that God moves first. And hence, what I would call a theological construct, the idea that God gives us enough grace to even be able to respond, and had God not acted first. So Wesley is trying to escape something he does not believe in, and that is, we are free to choose God. He does believe in total depravity. We actually are not capable of choosing God on our own. So that would be a, a way to bring in the love of God along with the sovereignty of God. So it is a difference with Calvin, but I do understand Wesley's project, and I do think People find that this harmony of God's sovereignty and God's love being brought into compatibility. Right. I think the, the theological differences between those positions aside, I, I would want to say that, you know, in love, he predestined in, in Ephesians chapter one, this act of mercy could be interchanged with his love. His love is the thing that compels him to mercy. And so we never want to separate those two because you you, you right. can certainly get the people that advocate a Calvinist position all on sovereignty. And it's almost like a smug right. sovereignty of, you know, God is sticking it to people. God is motivated in his sovereignty to love his people. That's, you know, every found on every page of the Bible almost. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. So that whoever would believe, it's not a universal salvation in that passage whoever would believe because of god's love will have eternal life um and wesley certainly championed that i mean that is that is his right. uh clarion call now i will point out so even with that theological difference aside what's interesting here is in terms of experience there is no real difference in these two positions what happens is a person hears the gospel, they are convicted of their sin, they repent, they put their trust in God, they begin following him, they have to work hard to put their sin to death, they trust God's grace to give them strength, and they live their life following God. Both positions think that that's the way salvation happens. The right. only difference is if you could stand outside of that and look down and say, why did that person have faith. One would right. say, well, it was because God gave them the opportunity to have faith in this provenient grace. They could have turned it down, not just then, but always. And then somebody would look at that and say, God gave them faith so that they could believe. And they would believe after God gave them faith. Because the big difference is, does regeneration 
the fact that you are a new creation, does that happen so that you will believe? Or does that happen because you believed? And so right. the experience of it is actually the same. And this is where you get into all these things that I think are kind of mischaracterizations like, oh, you know, Calvinists don't believe in evangelism. Of course, Calvinists believe in evangelism. And that's the way that God has decreed his word to go out and people to get saved. Or, you know, Wesleyans don't believe in the sovereignty of God, that he's in charge of all things. Of course they do. They believe that God is electing, God is in control, Christ is reigning over the universe but they do believe in uh, the way that this happens a little bit differently. But of course, the experience of it is the same, putting our trust in him. Yeah. You know where I think you see the biggest difference in this is if you're going to go off track, I think Calvinists and Wesleyans go off track in opposite directions. If you see, uh, if you have a Calvinist position I think it's possible to say the preaching of the gospel is identifying those that God has already done a work in, that he has already determined. And there can be a lack of urgency in uh, preaching that gospel. Uh, I'm not saying that's what you should do, but I'm saying if you go wrong, that seems to me the direction that you would go wrong is not much of this relies on me. Wesleyans, if you're going to go wrong, you go wrong in the other direction. You slide uh, the other way, and that is, I have far more power and responsibility in people being saved than I actually do. Meaning, if the word being preached is to get people to make a response that the Spirit will act in them, I could easily slip into the idea that, oh, I need to do everything that I can to convince them that they should indeed pick Christ. And both of these positions I'm saying are errors. That's not the Calvinist view. I believe, yes, evangelism is what we're required to do, and that is God's mechanism to do it. We need to go evangelize the world. But if you go wrong, you would lean toward not. On the Wesleyan side, I think if you're going to go wrong, you're going to lean toward it more depends on me then I should think. Does that make a sense right. to you? Well, and that's a good way to frame it because I think the biggest disagreements are not over this text, Romans 9. Because remember, what we're really discussing here in Romans 9 is, is God just to elect? And if he does elect, do we still have responsibility? And I think these right. positions are relatively similar there. Uh, maybe the second one is the big disagreement because you actually do have the responsibility in a Wesleyan model uh, because you did choose after your will was freed, whereas you were given this and have responded with your own will from the Calvinist side of things. The biggest disagreements in general, though, are on limited atonement and perseverance of the saints, which at some point maybe we'll right. get into another text that teases out that difficulty. And that's where I think you framed it well in terms of where do you go off from here? Do you believe yeah. that, well, your will was freed, and so you chose him, and so you better do your best because you could as easily fall out of this? Or do you believe, no, God is holding you fast? You are choosing, but it's because God is holding you and you are persevering. And then, of course, there's the the really thorny discussion of, did Christ die for the quote-unquote whole world, or did right. Christ die for the quote-unquote elect? How far does the right. atonement span? Not backwards looking, again. He will have died for the people that end up trusting in him either way. But did he die on the front end? for a limited group or for the possibility of all. And uh, maybe we'll come back to that. Where I want to end uh, in another episode, where, where I want to end this one is, let's get practical, um, because we've been pretty theological here. Let's get practical. And I think this is where we come down uh, in a place where everybody can read this passage and think some of the same things, which is, it is clear in this passage that God is sovereign. God is God. He right. is not, uh, he does not owe us anything. He is not controlled by us. He's not in our debt. God is free to have mercy on whom he has mercy. And it is good of him to have mercy on anyone. Um, and then secondly, we are responsible. That's where Paul comes down in this second question is, well, how can he find fault? Well, who are you to challenge God? You're the sinful one, not him. So, you know, if God decided that he's going to make the world the way he wants to make it, who are you to say that he should have done it differently? And that's kind of where Paul lays down a trump card at the end. And the implication of that is, 
we have real moral responsibility for what we have done. We really are accountable for our sins, and it really is important for us to live a godly life if we have the Holy Spirit. He's going to help us do that. He's going to empower us to do that. But we really do get up and make choices every day. And so any view that says, you know, our choice is the only thing that matters, and God is responding to that, would not be a faithful reading of this passage. And then on the flip side, anything that says, well, God has already done it. And so we actually don't have to choose to do anything, not a faithful reading of this passage. Somehow, some way, and this is really the hard part, we have to figure out biblically how God can be totally sovereign and we can be morally responsible. We can actually make real decisions, just like it seems like we do all day long. We make decisions, we trust, we don't. We sin, we don't. Um, we grow closer to God or we don't, knowing that all the while God is sovereign over that process. That's really the difficult part of this. And I think everybody has to come to the point where they're saying, I've got to learn and study more as to how this works out. But that does seem to be what you take away from this text. Both are there. Both are important. Yeah, I agree. Experientially, when you just get the rubber meets the road, there is no human being who doesn't realize what each of us realizes. No, None of us can say, I never wanted to do any of the sins that I did. I never wanted to be a self-centered person. God apparently made me do that. We all know that we have the experience that we did those things. We haven't been compelled. Nobody put the imperious curse on us. We don't act or feel like robots. We actually did those things. And so from a human perspective, no one could honestly say, it's not fair for God to condemn me for these things. I had no choice. Yes, we did. We experienced that choice. So then instead of reading this passage as, oh my goodness, how could God pick and choose like this? We read it with a sense of gratitude and say, oh my goodness, how could God have saved a sinner like me? That's the appropriate response to this because the reality of it is all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we know Anybody who argues that is making an academic argument, because when the rubber meets the road, we all know we have sinned, and it's purely by God's grace that he has rescued us. Mm -hmm. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening. And we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.